In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In his day, Nebuchadnezzar, whom we've been reading about for these last few chapters, in his day, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king who had ever lived. And he ruled the greatest empire that had ever been on earth. But despite that, he kind of lived in the shadow of another. More than 2,000 years before Nebuchadnezzar, almost 1,000 years before Abraham, there was a king named Gilgamesh who had ruled over Sumer, the first of the great Near Eastern kingdoms. Through the centuries, Gilgamesh had become a larger-than-life legend, almost a myth, the greatest king of all time who had ruled over the greatest kingdom. Now, in the ancient world, the gods brought order to chaos, but it was the duty of the king to maintain that order for his people. When we looked at Genesis a number of years ago, we even looked at how that idea plays out in Genesis. Gilgamesh brought civilization to the world, but in his greatness, he forgot his duty and he abused his people. And according to the legends, they cried out to the gods for help, and the gods created Enkidu, a wild man who was more animal than human. He had horns, he was covered with hair, and he rampaged through the countryside, causing chaos and challenging King Nebuchadnezzar, or rather, challenging King Gilgamesh. He was supposed to be a reminder to the king that the king's duty was to maintain order for the sake of his people, but to claim to be the author of that order was to, to blasphemously claim for himself what rightly belonged to the gods. But of course, even that ended up going to Gilgamesh's head. He ended up outwitting the gods, and he tamed the wild Enkidu, and as he drew him closer and closer to his great city, Enkidu became civilized and became a man. And eventually, he became Gilgamesh's best friend and sidekick. Like the Epic of Gilgamesh was a poem carved in clay tablets roughly a thousand years before Nebuchadnezzar was even born, and it recounts all of the adventures of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. I mention all this because this great legendary king and his sort of beast man sidekick lie behind the events of the fourth chapter of Daniel. They help us make sense of what's going on here. Remember, this was part of the culture that Nebuchadnezzar knew. So for over 2,000 years, kings had come and gone in Mesopotamia, but they all kind of saw themselves as successors of that great legendary demigod king Gilgamesh and his kingdom. I think the way the author of Daniel chose to incorporate into his book the story we read, we read in chapter 4 kind of highlights this. So in the story, the king is Nebuchadnezzar, the same king from the last three stories. But when we look at the historical record, the events that are described here seem to have happened to a different king, a guy named Nabonidus, who was the last of the Babylonian emperors. Nabonidus described himself as a nobody. Nebuchadnezzar's nephew had ascended to the throne, but he was an evil man, so he was overthrown in a coup, and they put Nabonidus on the throne in his place. And of course, he became great. 
But from the perspective of the author of Daniel, none of that really mattered. One Babylonian king was as good, or you might say as bad, as any of the others. Going all the way back to Gilgamesh. Like Antiochus Epiphanes in his own day, the Greek king terrorizing Judah, these pagan kings rose to greatness, but they were notorious for taking all the credit for themselves. It's kind of a reminder that men were not created to rule men. God is king. But because we refuse to acknowledge his sovereignty, he raises up earthly kings to impose his order on the, on, on the world, and yet they seem inevitably to forget who it is they really serve. But we can take heart, because the Lord will hold earthly kings to account. That's kind of the message here. So Daniel 4 is written in a different style from the stories we've read so far. This is sort of like an encyclical from the king himself in the first person. And he tells in in the first person of his encounter with the God of Israel. And it begins this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, this follows right on the heels of the king's praise for the God of Israel, who just delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. But this is not a continuation of that episode. Something has happened since, and the king wants wants to report it to everybody in his empire. So whereas the last chapter began, remember, with the king summoning this enormous crowd of dignitaries and people from all the nations and tongues to come and acknowledge his greatness, to bow down before this great image that he's made, here it's like he's sending his letter out, and he's sending it out to all those same people, to all the nations and tongues under his reign, But now he's done so to declare to them the glory of the Most High God. But we have to ask, what has brought this on? Because this doesn't really sound like the Nebuchadnezzar we know. So continuing with verse 4, he writes, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Because, of course, that's what you would expect the emperor to do. I saw a dream that made me afraid. That must be some dream. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? This has happened before. It says, Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Another dream. 
The king summons his wise men to tell him the meaning of the dream, but for some reason he summons Daniel last, or he summons everybody but Daniel. I mean, it might be that the king here is really Nabonidus, that later king, not Nebuchadnezzar, and that this is his first experience of this sort, so he doesn't know that he should call Daniel first. Whatever the case, he says that the wise men are unable to explain the dream. Now, in just a bit, we'll hear him tell the dream to Daniel. And it seems like the meaning should be pretty obvious. This isn't a very cryptic dream. It seems like the real problem is that the wise men are afraid to tell the king what his dream means. So finally, getting nothing from them, the king summons Daniel. And even after everything that's happened, the king still doesn't quite get it. I mean, he's a Babylonian. He's acknowledged the might of the God of Israel, but that doesn't mean he's become like a Jewish monotheist. He's just kind of squeezed the Lord into his pantheon of gods. That's better than where he started, but he needs to acknowledge more of the Lord. But it's something. It's a start. And so he summons Daniel, and he explains his dream to him. He says, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. And then the imagery shifts slightly. It goes from the tree, and now it says, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. And you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So he sees this great tree. And this this imagery of a tree representing the life-giving rule of the king, it's found in the Old Testament, it's found in Ezekiel, it's found in Jeremiah. But more immediately, it's a motif that is found in Babylonian iconography. The tree's roots always sink way down to the waters under the earth. And its branches go up to the firmament, up to heaven. And it holds everything together. And they're thinking the gods established order. 
but someone on earth needed to hold it all together. And so in the Babylonian imagery, sometimes an image of the king replaces the tree itself. The king is the personification of order. The king sort of becomes the perfect or the ideal human being in the image of God. And we see this in the way Babylonians thought about their own civilizations and the peoples around them. They saw themselves as civilized. They lived in an ordered society, and that order was represented and maintained by the king. There were other peoples out there, but they were less than human. In fact, they would write about those foreign peoples that way. If they were not under the rule of their king, they would write about them as if they were animals or as if they were uncivilized. Again, think of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Enkidu was this wild man, uncivilized, leaving chaos everywhere he went. But Gilgamesh outwitted the gods by luring Enkidu closer and closer to his city and to himself. And the closer Enkidu got, the more civilized and the more human he became until he became a man. So the king is the great tree. He brings order, peace, prosperity, justice, civilization. He brings all those things to his people. But then the unexpected happens. This watcher, this heavenly being, like an angel, descends and orders that the tree be cut down. Its branches lopped off and its leaves and fruit stripped so that everything that's been under its protection flees. And the remaining stump is bound with iron and bronze, preserved for a time while the king is cast out. The angel or this watcher announces he will be wet with dew and live with the beasts of the grassland. For seven periods of time, he will have the mind of a beast. And why? What's the point of all of this? So that all the living will know that the real king is the most high. He gives the kingdoms of men, the angel says, to whom he wills, and sets over them the lowliest of men. Like I said, the dream seems pretty self-explanatory. I suspect if if Nebuchadnezzar had summoned any one of us and said, what does this dream mean? We pretty easily could have told him. You're the tree. God's going to cut you down. I don't think, again, that it was so much that the wise men couldn't explain it, but they were afraid to explain it. I suspect Nebuchadnezzar knew or suspected what this meant. He just wanted someone to tell him, no, 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 don't worry, king. Nah, it's got to be something else. But Daniel, who trusts in the Lord and who knows that it was the Lord who gave the dream to the king, Daniel, in faith, stands before the king and confirms what I think the king already knew but was afraid to admit. And so he goes on. We see Daniel talking in verse 19. It says, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So, I mean, even Daniel recognizes that human kingship is is a good thing. It's given by God. It's not good not to have a king. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And so Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. 
Because the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and it, and, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, <coughs> whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. That's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. For the most part, Daniel just repeats the obvious and confirms what I think the king already feared. Again, he is the great tree, bringing order to the world as a king rightly should. And as far as a dream goes, it seems that the king's fault is that he has refused to acknowledge that he rules that way on behalf of the Most High God. He's been happy to acknowledge the God of Israel and to bring the God of Israel into his own pantheon of gods. But that is not enough. He needs to acknowledge that the God of Israel is the Most High who rules over all, including the gods of Babylon, and most importantly, over himself. And that it is, it, that is this Most High God who has put him in this position of authority. That's the dream. Daniel goes on and he adds his own bit of wisdom and advice for the king. Daniel was there in the king's court. He could see how the king ruled his kingdom. He knew the king's faults. And so he adds, break off your sins. Make your rule about justice and mercy. If you do that, you might stave off the judgment that the Lord has decreed. Nebuchadnezzar built a lot. A lot would be an understatement. Um, There is a modern book put out by archaeologists that is 126 pages long, and all it is is the inscriptions that Nebuchadnezzar put on the things he built. His city was enormous. It's a testament to his greatness and all he accomplished. I mean, it was the greatest city the world had ever known at the time. His hanging gardens were one of the seven wonders of the world. In one of those building inscriptions, he describes himself as a just king and as meek 
and humble. Maybe that inscription came later in his life. And that's the imagery that the tree suggests. A king who is great, but who is meek and humble. It's worth noting that Daniel leaves that part out when he retells the dream. Because Nebuchadnezzar's great empire, you might imagine it kind of like the Hindu god Vishnu. Vishnu is supposed to be the god who preserves human life and all of that. But then in the great festivals celebrating him, they would put his image, at least traditionally, I don't know if they still do this, but they would put a giant, like an idol, on a giant wheeled throne and and push it through the, the, the streets of the city. And here's Vishnu, the preserver, and yet these massive wheels on the throne would crush anyone and anything that got in its way. It's typical of earthly governments and earthly kings. I mean, we see that still today in earthly governments. They have the best of intentions, and yet they just routinely and uncaringly grind people up in the gears of bureaucracy. Even pagan kings are called by God to embody his divine kingship, to preserve life, to keep order, and this was where Nebuchadnezzar was apparently falling short, to show justice and mercy. To acknowledge that there is a higher king and that earthly kings and earthly governments merely represent him. I'm reminded of the disputes between King James and the Presbyterians of Scotland. James believed in the divine right of kings. He thought he was above the law. And he got himself into trouble with the Scots. He tried to impose episcopacy on the Church of Scotland. There was one Scottish minister, Andrew Melville, who's famous for rebuking the king and saying, Sir, ye are God's silly vassal. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the head of the commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject James VI is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, not lord, not head, but a member. Nebuchadnezzar needed a rebuke kind of like that. And Daniel spoke it, Humble yourself and commit yourself to justice and mercy. Remember the king who has put you where you are and whom you serve. But it does not appear the king heeded that warning from Daniel. Continuing at verse 28, it says, All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon And we know what that now, we kind of reconstructed things, we know what that would have looked like. He'd be up there probably only for one reason, and that's to survey all of his greatness and all that he had done. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, Brothers and sisters, if God has put you where you are, never claim that it's for your glory or your majesty. And he goes on, he says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, 
there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So again, a year later, he's up on the roof of his palace, He's looking at the greatest city in the world. Nothing's changed. He takes credit for all of this. He glorifies himself. And as he declares his greatness, the Lord speaks. The tree's going to be cut down, the kingdom taken away from the king for seven periods of time. And it's not clear what the Aramaic word means. It doesn't usually mean year. There's a different word for that. So we don't know what this seven times or seven seasons, as some translated, exactly means. But for some specific period of time, the king is to live as a wild man in the grasslands. Remember that epic of Gilgamesh and his wild man sidekick, Enkidu? It's interesting because the structure of the Lord's speech here parallels the civilizing of Enkidu in in that epic, but in reverse. It's almost like someone had that epic poem in mind as they were writing this. Enkidu was more animal than man, but the closer he drew to the king and to his city, the more human he became. And in precisely the opposite way now, the king is driven from his city and progressively becomes a wild man like Enkidu. You see, the king thought of himself like Gilgamesh, the great king who single-handedly brought order and prosperity to the world. But because he refuses to acknowledge God, the true Lord of all, he's driven off to live like an animal. For seven periods of time, however long that is, he is reminded that he is not God. He is at best Yahweh's sidekick. And it's interesting that because he refused to repent, at this point now, he has no option. The time is fixed. At the end, the Lord announces, you will be restored because you will have learned that it is the Most High who rules the kingdoms of men. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to, to, to note here how the Lord's discipline works. I think this also said something to the people of of Judah who were in exile, because Israel's problems weren't the same as Nebuchadnezzar's problems, but, but the Lord's discipline works in a similar way for his own people. <clears throat> From the outset, he spoke through the prophets and said that her exile would last 70 years, and that when it was over, he would bring them home and he would be glorified through his people. It wasn't a matter of disciplining the king or even disciplining his own people until they learned the lesson, and then he would restore them once they'd learned it. Both Nebuchadnezzar and and the people of Judah, they had missed the chance for that. 
The opportunity for that was back when the prophets were speaking to them and calling to repentance and calling out their sins and saying, don't do that, come back to the Lord. Now the Lord decrees a set time, and he also decrees that when that time is over, the king will have learned. And the same goes for Israel and the discipline of her exile. Brothers and sisters, we need to heed the Lord's warning when he gives them. Now verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are righteous and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So the Lord was good to his word. When the time had passed, the kingdom was restored, And for all his trouble, he had finally gained wisdom. In this fallen world, there is a place for human kings. But only when the kingship of the Most High is first acknowledged as the root and source of all human authority and government. Nebuchadnezzar can even acknowledge his own greatness here. But now that statement of his own greatness, it's sandwiched between his confessions that it is the Lord who has supreme dominion. The king's sin was pride, and his government was rebuked for overseeing injustice and for lacking mercy. But Nebuchadnezzar now acknowledges that all the Lord's works are right and just, and that he makes the prideful to be humble. So the great king is now back on his great wheeled throne, but no more will it rumble through the streets, crushing everyone who gets in the way. It's a long passage, so I want to move quickly on to some application. We have to ask, what does it mean for us? When Daniel was written, this was meant to be an encouragement to the people of Judah in their exile. As the other stories about Daniel and his friends reminded them, it might seem like these foreign pagan kings were in control, but despite appearances, the Lord was still on his throne. Does it ever feel like God is out of control? We look at the world around us, and everything just seems to be spiraling downward, away from God, away from any kind of holiness or godliness. Is he not still in control? Here were the people of Judah in exile. And Daniel's reminded God is in control. The time all these stories were put together, they were living under this Greek king who terrorized them, was forcing them to to disobey God's law. And many of their brethren were falling into apostasy. Was God still in control? Daniel reminds them, 
The Lord is always on his throne. His promises will always be fulfilled, and he will hold earthly rulers to account. And you and I can take comfort in the same way. No earthly king or prime minister or president rules apart from the Lord's sovereign authority. No matter how things seem, our God is in control and he will hold human beings and human rulers to account. But then, too, the application here shifts a little bit in our own context. We do not live under an absolute emperor like Nebuchadnezzar. We live in a democracy. And that means that at least just a little bit of the authority that Nebuchadnezzar had now rests with each of us. Yvonne, you have just a little bit of authority that Nebuchadnezzar had. Jackie, John, we all have a little bit of that. As individuals, we hold that little bit of power, but it might be small, but what we do have embodies a God-given obligation to the pursuit of a government that is humble, that acknowledges the authority of God, and that acts with justice and mercy. And that, brothers and sisters, is an integral part of our witness in the kingdom of God in our own day. As Nebuchadnezzar saw the great tree of human kingship that brought order and prosperity to the world, you and I have seen the even greater tree on which the Lord Jesus died. The tree by which he has brought justice and mercy, the justice and mercy of the Father into a broken world. The cross is the tree by which Jesus has become this world's true Lord. It's the tree by which the Most High God has once again become king through his Son who has died and who has risen and who has ascended to his throne and who we believe will come again. The kings of old could only see power and strength in the tree of government. But in the cross, you and I have met the one who rules with justice and mercy. The kings and people of old walked in great darkness, but in Jesus we have seen a great light. As Isaiah wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah goes on and writes that the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Brothers and sisters, we have seen in the cross of Jesus the Lord of hosts has, in fact, done this. Now may we live as witnesses to his kingdom and to Jesus, the King. Let's pray. O Lord, teach us to see and to trust in your kingship regardless of our circumstances. 
Teach us to hear your voice. Teach us to heed your warnings. Teach us to learn from your discipline. Give us your grace that we might be faithful stewards of your kingdom, always acknowledging your sovereignty with humility and seeking to manifest the justice and mercy of the cross. Through Jesus, the Messiah, we pray, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. Amen.